0: Hello, and welcome to Market Matters, Thompson Hines' podcast series that explores critical legal and regulatory issues affecting the investment management industry. I'm Bib Strench, a partner in the firm's investment management group. Today, I will be presenting the fourth installment of our ongoing Market Matters podcast series. Our topic is ETF regulation. Preparing for the ETF liquidity rule and what's coming up for ETFs in the Trump administration. The lead story for ETFs is always growth. ETF growth continues unabated. Numbers? Well, ETFs listed in the U.S. reached a new record high of $2.75 trillion at the end of the first quarter of 2017. ETFs listed in the U.S. gathered $132 billion of new assets in that same quarter. Will it continue? Uh, You bet. Strong tailwinds are blowing. The DOL rule has become the catalyst that started a dramatic trend for reduced fees for retirement accounts. ETFs are less expensive than mutual funds, which make them extremely attractive for retirement and other fiduciary accounts. The robo-advisor industry is exploding well, these programs uh, typically use ETFs. ETFs are popular investment options used by financial advisors. For example, if there is a market correction, investors can sell their ETF shares at an instant market price that future mutual funds do not have. Just to make sure we're speaking the same language here, let's go over the acronyms and types of ETF products. ETF broadly means all exchange traded products but for our purposes only exchange traded funds that invest in securities for example the spider which invests in the stocks that make up the s&p 500 is the largest etf in the world etp for our purposes means exchange traded funds that invest in non security assets such as gold, futures, and options. GLD Spider, which is the largest gold ETP in the world, is an example of an ETP. Now there are two types of ETFs. There are passive, also called index ETFs, which as the name suggests are passively managed ETFs that track an index. There are also actively managed ETFs Those ETFs allow the manager to buy and sell securities without taking into account the index. I will mention one other type of ETF since it's in vogue. Smart Beta ETFs, which is a subcategory of passive index ETFs. No one has precisely defined them, but they are ETFs that track an index that has been enhanced or juiced up. For example, A smart beta index that heavily weights its stocks in the S&P 500 that have the highest momentum scores is a smart beta index ETF. Now let's uh, turn to the regulators. It's important that you know who your regulators are when discussing, obviously, upcoming rules. The key regulators start with the SEC's Division of Investment Management. An ETF is an investment company that this division regulates. Importantly, all ETFs must obtain an exemption from this division before commencing operations, which can slow a launch and stifle innovative ETFs. The SEC's Division of Trading Markets regulates the shares of the ETFs because they trade on a stock exchange. These stock exchanges are the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and BATS. In particular, each ETF must meet listing standards. Key service providers of ETFs, such as the uh, authorized participant, distributor, and lead market maker, are also regulated by this division. Stock exchanges, the three that I mentioned, they each have their own rules, and those rules are approved by the SEC. FINRA regulates the sales activities of ETFs and the key ETF service providers that I just mentioned. Now let's turn to the regulatory crossroads we're at. After a little advancement in the ETF regulation the past 10 years, the industry has reached, like I said, a regulatory crossroads. Let's begin by dividing the discussion into two. The leftovers from the President Obama administration In what may be coming up in the President Trump administration. Leftovers. Under Chair White, who was appointed by President Obama, ETF regulation can be best characterized during her reign as stagnant. The ETF rule was not adopted. Non-transparent, actively managed ETF applications were not approved. I realize the next shares was approved, but it's really not a pure ETF. Thirdly, the derivatives rule was not adopted, leaving uncertainty regarding ETFs that invest in such instruments. And fourth, the SEC rule to deem broker-dealers fiduciaries is not proposed. Nevertheless, three important rules made it through in the waning hours of Chair White's tenure. They are the liquidity rule, the SEC reporting modernization rule, and the new continued listing stock exchange standards. ETFs in the liquidity rule. Before getting into the weeds of this rule, let's touch on the importance of liquidity to ETFs. The heartbeat of an ETF is its underlying assets. If there's a robust market for the underlying assets that the ETF owns that generates reliable prices, the ETF will operate smoothly as advertised. If not, the ETF may languish and may run into regulatory trouble. Why? Well, remember ETFs operate on two levels. On the top level, also called the secondary market level, ETF shares trade on a market. The basket of securities that make up the ETF is transparent to the investing world. If there is an issue with the basket securities That issue can disrupt the trading of the ETF shares, which are the basket's proxy. An extreme example was the August 24, 2015 flash crash. Only about half the S&P 500 stocks were open on the New York Stock Exchange that morning. With no prices for many of the ETF holdings, market makers had a difficult time setting the opening price and making a market in ETFs. This caused over 1,000 trading halts in nearly 500 different ETFs and stocks. On the bottom level, the primary market, authorized participants or APs and only APs are allowed to purchase and contribute the basket of securities to the ETF, especially when large orders come in. These are called creation units and they contribute the basket of securities in exchange for ETF shares. APs are also the only investor that can receive the basket of securities when large sell orders come in, and these are called redeem units or redeems. A key term that you will hear is implied liquidity. The implied liquidity of a given ETF is the number of shares of the ETF you can purchase until you start moving the price of the underlying stocks that the ETF owns. The higher number of ETF shares purchased that it takes to move the prices of those underlying stocks, the healthier the ETF is. Now let's turn to the ETF liquidity rule since we know a little bit more about ETFs liquidity. The ETF industry fought and partially won the battle to not have the liquidity rule known as 22E4 under the 1940 Act, apply to ETFs. What is the liquidity rule? Well, mutual funds and ETF complexes will have to have, one, a liquidity risk management program, two, they're gonna have to set three-day liquid asset minimums if the fund does not hold highly liquid investments, and take certain actions when those minimums are not met. Three, At least 15% of the assets of the funds can only be in illiquid securities. Thus, 85% have to be in liquid securities. And fourthly, there are certain uh, other conditions of the rule. When do these rules come into place? Well, if you are part of a fund complex with over a billion dollars of assets, December 2018, other uh, ETF and fund complexes will have until June 1, 2019. Let's talk about the ETF liquidity risk management program that I mentioned. So all ETFs will have to establish a liquidity risk management program that establishes five things. Number one, the process the ETF uses to analyze the ability to redeem in-kind under all market conditions. Two, the circumstances in which the ETF may include a de minimis amount of cash in an in-kind redemption. Three, the amount of cash the ETF will treat as de minimis. Four, the process to approve any portion of a redemption that is paid in cash. And five, the process for documenting the ETF's determination that a cash amount is de minimis. Now, in making the determination that a cash amount is de minimis, the ETF provider will consider the amount and frequency with which cash is used to meet redemptions, this is both in dollars and as a percentage of the entire redemption basket, into the circumstances and rationale for using cash to meet redemptions. And just so we're clear, what we're talking about again is that primary level. That's when an AP puts in a redemption order and it presents to the ETF shares of the ETF. And in an exchange, the ETF is obligated to provide it with the underlying basket of portfolio securities. Obviously, to the extent that basket is illiquid, that may raise concerns as to whether that redeem can be properly and timely executed. So, An ETF, to avoid having to comply with the stringent requirements of the SEC's liquidity rule, must qualify as an in-kind ETF. The SEC defined an in-kind ETF as an ETF that, one, publishes its holdings daily, that's easy, two, it must meet redemptions through in-kind transfers of securities with no more than a de minimis amount of cash. If so, it will meet the definition of an in-kind ETF. An ETF that does not meet the definition of in-kind ETF, as I said, will suddenly have to comply with the full rule. Um, This will lead to a burdensome classification of its portfolio securities, and possibly having to comply with those three-day minimums I discussed above. So ideally, ETFs would want to qualify as an in-kind ETF. However, to do so, when they make a redemption, only a de minimis, and this is important, only a de minimis amount of that redemption can be in cash. The rest need to be in the portfolio securities that make up its basket. Well, um, this has already led to short-term confusion. Uh, There are many unanswered questions about the liquidities rule application to ETFs. The main one, as I keep emphasizing, is what is de minimis cash? Uh, The SEC did not define de minimis cash in the rule, uh, nor its adopting release. This lack of clarity may create an unintended reverse safe harbor. That is, ETFs for fear of violating the rule will just come to the conclusion that if their redemption has any cash in it, they will just comply with the full rule. ETFs that are part of a complex with mutual funds may be tempted to go this route, the conservative route, because they may already be subjecting their mutual funds to the full liquidity rule, and why not just have the ETFs follow that same scheme? Now, the SEC did give some guidance uh, with respect to de minimis, but it did say in the case if there was a one-time cash redemption, even that would cause the ETF to no longer be able to classify itself as an in-kind ETF. It did state that the ETF could qualify later years, perhaps maybe months, not clear, if it no longer made such redemptions. Again, there's uncertainty as kind of how long it would be in this penalty box and would not be able to call itself an in-kind ETF. Other unanswered questions, derivatives. What about an ETF that invests uh, mostly in derivatives and and uses cash in lieu of the derivatives? Probably going to not be able to call themselves an in-kind ETF. And also, there are issues with respect to international ETFs. Brazil, for example, does, prohibits in-kind transactions and thus redemptions. So that may be problematic for a lot of international funds will automatically not be able to, to meet the definition of in-kind ETF. Let's quickly turn to a couple of the other rules that made it through at the end. The SEC adopted a reporting modernization rules, ETFs, like all investment companies, will be subject to a new comprehensive regulatory reporting scheme that is data, other information that needs to be reported to the SEC periodically and in a certain format required by the SEC. Notably, with respect to ETFs, when the SEC adopted this rule, it, in my view, disproportionately emphasized the create-redeem process by adding especially detailed reporting requirements for an AP activity. It remains to be seen you know, why there was such an emphasis on the AP activity is it a way for the SEC to get information so it can go out and look for violations by the ETFs with respect to their prospectus disclosure and exemptive orders that describe the AP create-redeem process? Unclear, but it, it is of some concern to the industry. The third area that, that squeaked through uh, toward the end uh, was the stock exchange's new continued listing standards. Prior to an ETF launching it must represent to the listing exchange that it will meet the exchange's generic listing standards. It should be noted as an aside that an ETF that does not meet an exchange's generic listing standards must work with the exchange to obtain a 19b 4 order from the SEC to be able to list. There are a host of listing requirements in the standards. Some of these apply to the indexes that an index ETF will be following or or tracking. There are other requirements such as a minimum number of record holders, days between tradings, etc. These requirements, as I said, must be met at the launch of the ETF. Earlier this year, the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets essentially caused the exchanges to require ETFs to continuously meet these requirements, like I said, instead of just at the ETF's inception. If they do not, then they will be delisted from the exchange. This requirement obviously will add a burden to ETF operations as well as increase the cost due to investment in compliance and reporting systems. These rules go in effect for NASDAQ on August 1st, 2017, and the New York Stock Exchange and BATS on October 1, 2017. Now let's turn to ETFs under the new Trump administration. Trump appointee Jay Clayton recently cleared the Senate Committee's nomination process and should become before a full Senate vote shortly. Chairman-elect Jay Clayton is expected to initiate a number of reforms that will impact ETFs directly and indirectly. First, market reforms. In a Senate hearing testimony, Clayton emphasized making the markets more attractive, including more issues for ETFs to invest in and better working markets. The ETF rule. An ETF rule was first proposed in 2008, and hopefully that will finally be adopted, which will be able to speed ETFs to the market. Thirdly, It is expected that a new chairman would take a fresh look at non-transparent, actively managed ETFs. Some of the world's largest ETF complexes have been unable to convince the SEC to allow an ETF that is actively managed but that does not post all of its portfolio holdings each day to be a product available to investors. The prior chairman and fellow commissioners were concerned that if the list of securities were not posted each day, then people in the market would not be able to arbitrage to keep the price of the share price of the ETF close to the price of the ETF's net asset value per share. Several large fund complexes have proposed alternatives that they think address this concern. A fresh look by the new chairman and the current commissioners may finally allow this product to come to market. Thank you for listening to Market Matters. I hope you found the information shared during today's program valuable. If you would like to learn more about today's topic or Thompson Hines Investment Management Group, please visit ThompsonHine.com or contact a member of our team directly. With approximately 400 lawyers and seven offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and in client service. Our SmartPath approach provides clients with service that is predictable, efficient, and aligned with their goals.